So you go by Chris. I go by Chris. Yes. I found it hilarious that um, that Joe kept insisting on calling you Christopher in the emails. But of course, it felt very proper. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, but also, um, Joe's own name is Joseph in the emails. And so, like, I'm getting all these emails between Christopher and Joseph, and I'm like, you know, what the heck? You know, these guys. <laughs> Like it's having, it's like having these friends, it's like having two friends meet who have never met before in like a bizarro world in which everybody is like way more formal than they actually are. It's interesting because your name, Christian, it, it has never occurred to me to refer to you as anything other than Christian. And when I hear people, and occasionally it happens, oh boy, people refer to you as Chris, I, 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 it takes me a bit to know who they're talking about because it's just, and that's even when you're in the conversation and they do, this has happened with us. That's the kind of thing that makes uh, my daughter angry when she hears that. Yeah. Uh, and people almost never call me Joseph. People call me Joe. Yeah, of course. Joseph is a fairly unusual way to refer to somebody. Chris, I think I've told you this before, but I, there's a quick way to tell who's going to call me Chris. There is a way? It's but so do, awful. It's do, so wrong. There, there is a way and it, it works every time. And, and the, what you, all you need to look out for is, is the person who's using my name an older woman who smokes? Huh. If the answer to that is yes, she's going to call me Chris. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I would have guessed someone in golf shoes. Well, that, that too. So, you know, the one who insisted on calling me Chris was my grandmother on my mother's side. Mm. And I think it drove my parents crazy. My, yeah. mom can t- my mom's a listener to the show. Um, she makes up 50% of our audience. <laughs> uh, and, and so she can tell me if I'm wrong, but, but she called me Chris a lot. You know, her she, mother. I, y- yes. And I think she, she kept, even though they didn't want her to, and even though no one else did, I think she wanted to, like, she wanted that to be her thing. Hmm. I'm not sure. Now, did she also encourage you to smoke with her? <laughs> I mean, you said she was a smoker and no, maybe was, smokers uh, oftentimes like the company of other smokers. I think so. I'm just enough older than you that that it wasn't during that era where mm. where smoking was something just a rite of passage that conferred good health. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know for sure. But Chris, you you embrace the shortened version of your name. Embrace it. I do. Yeah. I do. I haven't been a Christopher since I was in trouble as a youngster. <laughs> that was when I heard the name Joseph. Whenever I heard Joseph Scott Miller, that meant something very bad had happened. Oh, and you both have a middle yeah. name, middle initial S. Christopher Stein Elmendorf was definitely followed by <laughs> repetition on his part. Stein, you said. Stein, yes. So it's a, it's some sort of family name that's uh, been dragooned into your middle name. Yes, but it does sort of have a you know, central point of emphasis if you're trying to get the child's attention. Oh, sure, sure. Have we said, his, have we said your last name, Chris? So this is Chris Elmendorf at, from UC Davis. We're going to talk about a paper. Day. We'll get to the paper in a second. Um, Chris, of course, we're going to summarize the paper. We're going to have that segment of the show. Um, rest assured. Oh, really? Yeah. If, yeah I, I, I feel so bad because I gave you a paper that is very challenging to summarize after, after you know, after giving you guys a hard time. After, after, after failing to do that. Oh, is Chris the one hectoring us about... Uh, not providing uh, the summaries and such? I, I, hectoring, no. I mean, well, we'll get to that in just a I second. I say that only because he's here. I would, I would describe it in much more benign and friendly terms. But since he's here, I want to act as if I'm uh, taking umbrage. Well, I, you know, Chris and I have known each other. Uh, we, we clerked together. Because it's actually an excellent observation. Cr- Chris and I clerked together and, um, and unfortunately are, are separated by a continent now. Mm. Um, and are very good friends. And um, so, but, you know, when you and I started the show, I was hoping we'd get a lot of listeners and everything. But, you know, I knew that maybe people like Chris, they had, I was thinking maybe Chris would be too busy to listen to the show. 
um, frankly. And and also, like, <laughs> you weren't a podcast listener for a long time either, right, Chris? I mean, you, you are That's like true. an early I've podcast I've been a listener. late adopter of most things uh, technological. And so when I recently ran into Chris again, and Chris told me that he was, the way he broke it to me was by saying, I'm an Argonaut. Mm. And I was like, wow. Very few things make me beam with pride these days. Um, but But that was one of them. And, and he and, even pronounced it argue not. That, that's the way that I remember it in, in my heart. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's... And I'm still in the dark as to the, as the proper pronunciation, so... Well, it depends on which one of us you ask. Uh, my preference would be Argonaut, and uh, Christians would be argue not. Apparently, Joe likes to have arguments. <laughs> no, I, I am attuned to the nature of linguistic change. And I know that in centuries uh, hence, that is how people will pronounce it, whatever we want, because oh. that's just easier to say. So this is the time... In our language. This is the time capsule theory of our show. That, yes, that I'm really... projecting us into the future. By the way, if you want to get in touch with the show, we haven't said this in a long time, so we're going to just say it off the top. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. And we've at gotten, Oral Argument on Twitter. Yeah, we've gotten um, some good feedback on Twitter. We've gotten some, uh, some good emails. So the, the, the mailbag is kind of collecting starting to burst at the seams again. Mm. We've got to unzip that thing soon and, and, you know, start pulling out mails. Indeed. And, and talking about it. But not today, because we got, we got Chris with us. And how do you, how do you want to get into this? Should we, should we have a formal, you know, should we have like a little music stinger? Like, this is the summary of the paper? We haven't taken it that far. Yet. So, <laughs> so here's, here's what I think we need in terms of, of the, the paper. Uh, and you both... Like Christian, I know you teach land use, and I have taught not in a couple years now. And so this and this paper relates to problems of uh, land use and zoning regulation and housing regulation. And uh, I think, therefore, it's it's more accessible for the two of you. And therefore, I'm a little bit more like maybe some of our audience members who who haven't taught a class like that yeah. or, or aren't steeped in this. So I think what would what would help listeners is if Chris could sort of help us understand just as a as a piece of background why there's a housing crisis which there seems to be and in uh, in uh, urban areas and who the sort of main stakeholders are in in the in the process that produces some of the shortages of housing both market housing and affordable housing and then once we have that on the table then the conversation about how we might go about sort of addressing the root causes of that to ameliorate that would, would make a lot more sense. Sure. I'd be happy to, to, to give a little big picture and then Christian, you can, you can jump in as well. Yeah, sure. And I should, I should say as well that many moons ago, I was hired to teach property and environmental and land use law. And then I became a voting rights scholar kind of inadvertently. And this is the first paper I've written in the property land use and a dozen years or so. Wow. Okay. And if anything, it's as connected to my thinking about problems of voting rights as it is about land use. And that makes an explicit appearance in the paper. I mean, that you you don't background that like you you foreground the fact that there's there are lessons to be learned from voting rights here. Right. If you if you take sort of the long view of of American land use, looking back over say 150 years, the the basic pattern of development was that there would be economic or technological changes that would make um, a particular area of the country newly valuable or would have new new opportunities. And people would move there for work and houses would be built to accommodate them. And the price of housing would sometimes 
where the price of land would sometimes go up abruptly during periods of growth, but then the housing supply would expand and prices would would come back down. And uh, there was a lot of of interregional movement as people sought economic opportunity, or in the case of African Americans fleeing the South, you know, sought to to flee racial persecution. Let me stop you there, actually, before you before you uh, talk about sort of current because it. Like a lot of times, and you, uh, you're a listener, so you know, a lot of times we'll sort of use this schoolhouse rock as a way to refer to, you know, just conventional ways of thinking about stuff. So this might be mm-hmm. sort of the a, a Deadwood. Do you know the HBO show Deadwood about this town? Oh, yes. The, yeah. So this is sort of like the Deadwood theory of housing, right? So <laughs> like someone finds something in a new place, a bunch of new people are going to move there. You're going to have to build some things uh, for them to live in. There'll be a little while when there's tents, but then there'll be some other structures. And, you know, where do things get built? Well, you know, there's sort of a center of town and things get built around that. And of course, the brothel is close to the center of town because that's all like all the dudes are there and uh, blah, blah, blah. But uh, you basically you build the stuff because people are arriving and they want a place to live and things just sort of get built as needed in the place that makes the most sense given who's there right now and what the materials are and all that kind of stuff. But it's a very it's very uh, informal and I suppose you could call it an organic process, right? It's just sort of driven by who's there and what's around and what's needed. Yeah, and and you know existing buildings get torn down and replaced with with denser housing as as you know, there's more people and more people want housing. And that's sort of an ordinary part of the process. And and what's what's I think important about that as a as a kind of schema, if that's how people are thinking about housing uh, even now, because they haven't thought about it very much, is that's a very uh, bottom up process where you wouldn't imagine you need a lot of planning. Right. You wouldn't need a lot of advanced thinking about where to put stuff or, oh, my gosh, well, but where will we put this thing later? Right. Uh, you just sort of, well, maybe there won't be here. People won't be here later or there won't be more people. And we'll just like worry about that then. Let's worry about now, now. Uh, and the the kind of processes you're describing in the paper, the world has just changed so much yeah. in terms of densities and where people are and what our full range of concerns are, including environmental concerns and follow-on effects of commutes that burn more fossil fuels that contribute to climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the kind of Deadwood theory is, I think, although could be a lot of people's first cut at what happens in the world, is sort of like deeply, deeply wrong, <laughs> it seems to me yeah. now. So, uh, so it is deeply wrong. So, so one thing that you uh, see as a departure from that historic pattern starting roughly in the 1940s is that uh, densification of existing neighborhoods stops. By densification, I mean sort of redevelopment of existing neighborhoods at higher residential densities, tearing down single family homes, replacing them with fourplexes or small apartment buildings, or tearing down small apartment buildings and replacing them with bigger apartment buildings. So basically after the Great Depression, when home building resumes, the previous patterns of of densification are, are no longer. Now, maybe that's due to the spread of zoning, Maybe that's due to the interstate highway system, but the new mode of development is not replacement of existing housing stock with with denser forms of development. The new form of development is sprawl uh, towards outlying regions. There's a second process that starts in the 1960s and 1970s, 
or second big change, you might say, which is that that the sprawling process stops in some parts of the country or slows down dramatically. So that in the Northeast and in the West Coast, uh, with the growth of environmental concerns and regulations, there's at the local level and to some degree at the state level as well, slow growth movements or no growth movements, um, open space preservation movements. And so you get a pattern whereby in the South and Southwest, cities continue to grow outward and those cities remain relatively affordable. And in the Northeast and along the West Coast, cities stop growing outward, but they don't intensify either. Instead, they just stop producing housing or at least the rate of housing production relative to population and economic growth slows dramatically. Over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a massive run up in prices particularly along the coasts uh, in the, the desirable and economically productive cities of the, of the East and West Coast, the Northeast and the, and the West Coast. And I guess with historic preservation, uh, not only do you not have uh, densification, um, you don't even really have replacement of older structure with newer structure, uh, which I suppose could change your sort of your useful life calculus and other other ways of thinking about the value of the housing stock. Yeah, I mean, there's some replacement, but it's it's an expensive form of replacement when it happens. One of the weird things about land use, right, is that it is, on the one hand, it is like clearly a market and it's like one of the most markets of markets, right? People are buying and selling real estate. They have diverse preferences. They shop for, you know, housing and, you know, whether it's closeness to work or it's uh, environmental amenities or it's uh, big lawn or all the you know, people want different things. And so they're on the market for all these different things. Right. And, and so land is scarce, right? Like, like many goods. And so, you know, you just can't make more of it automatically, but there's this problem that arises when people start to demand things that really like can't be delivered without some kind of collective governance. Like it's just, it's just not possible to live in a in a even somewhat dense neighborhood and have parks and other things that you want if you have no control over how land is developed in your community. In order to get the amenities of land ownership, you also need to be part of kind of a collective governance entity, right, which has some control. Um, but at the, at the same time, partly because of those collective mechanisms, land, is, you know, land is, it's not uniquely, I don't want to go too far, but it, it's it's unbelievably responsive to in, in price to regulation, so much so that you know local entities. It, it, it's a kind of a form of taxation, right? That local entities can intentionally downzone or keep at, at a very um, basically high regulatory bar for development lands, and then kind of sell those, sell upzoning, right? It, it's a store of value for communities, right? Um, allowing people to build. What does I, the word downzone mean? That's kind of a lingo word, I think. Is for it? Land uh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. So, so um, well, to downzone is a verb means to reduce the intensity or and nature of uses that are allowed on the property. So, if you have a say an industrial industrially zoned uh, a bit of property, if you could downzone it to say single family residential or to agricultural uses, you can also upzone by increasing the intensity and uh, diversity of types of uses allowed on the land. So would changing from a single-family home to a, to a multi-family structure be a case of upzoning that would because usually, that's more intense Yeah, use? that would usually be considered upzoning, and it's kind of a classic kind of— um, this was the one mentioned in Euclid, right? The, the original Supreme Court case upholding zoning um, against 
things that look kind of like due process challenges. Where, where uh, after, do you remember the name of the justice who wrote this opinion? I always forget. Sutherland, but, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, right? And 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 he, you know, castigates the uh, parasites that are apartment complexes mm. that move in on single family residential, nice. right? So, so there is this kind of. And that's before World War II, right? So this is before even kind of suburban development. And there's this kind of already this desire to create single family residential homes free of the parasites of density, right? Yeah. And it's not it's not clear whether the parasite is the building or the parasite is the inhabitants of the building. I, yeah. It was I'm kind sure of, Justice Sutherland would have been happy to call either one. Probably um, so. I mean, so, so Chris, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, this is, it's early yet in the show and I don't have all the, the engine's not fully running yet, but like, did you, did that, did that make some sense in terms of the economics of it, that there is, there is this kind of unusual responsiveness in terms of price and economics to um, local regulatory whim. So is, is land unusually responsive? I don't know that, well, I don't know what the comparison is, but I guess what I would say is that, is that land is pervasively regulated. Yeah. There, there's some, there's some areas where we might think of there being like kind of the natural baseline or, or natural is the wrong word, but, but the baseline of that, that we're acclimated to or some people are attracted to as kind of libertarian baseline where there's, where there's little regulation and regulation is seen as, as kind of something that needs to be justified. Right. Um, since zoning became widespread, uh, starting in the, in the 1920s, that simply has not been true of land use in any residential setting. Right. I, I was just thinking that, you know, how much you could sell your property for if you own a piece of real estate, you know, in and around San Francisco where you are like, how much that depends on what you're allowed to do on that property and the degree to which a local government and state government can kind of shape what you're allowed to do is like, there's a huge latitude there. Right. And so like the value of what you have in, when it comes to land, it seems to me it it becomes so obvious that it's related to regulation. Whereas with other goods, like, you know, whether it's cars or, you know, computers or even other expensive thing, you know, other expensive things kind of like land, those things, you know, the value of a car totally depends on your ability to drive it around and all kinds of regulations. I mean, even clothing, lots of stuff depends on uh, the value of it depends on regulations and not to mention social norms and things. But, but it seems to me with land, it's almost like, like everybody kind of knows it, right? That it just is the value of, of land is, is, um, not entirely, um, a product of, the regulatory bundle, but it is unusually obvious. I think that it yes, is like tied to I think to that's it. true. But, and, and importantly, not just a function of how your own piece of land is regulated, but also of how other land in the neighborhood is regulated. My guess is though that non-lawyers would think of it as value of land is very tied up with what else it's near. Now, obviously, regulation has everything to do with what it's near, like what is happening in the, on the things it's around or that are around it. But but I, I think non-lawyers, I don't think, would think of that as regulatory. I, I think they would think of it as, well, look, this is, you know, of course, a, a, a plot of land, it costs different things if it's in the housing part of town, if it's in the industry part of town, if it's in the, you know, if it's out away from a lot of other people out in the, you know, rural area. And, and, and regulation has a lot to do with locating things near each other that are of a similar type, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. No? I, well, yes, but I, I, I was thinking, so I wanted to talk about, uh, about the responsiveness in terms of uh, value to regulation in order to do some framing, which Chris, you may resist, that if you think of uses of land in the aggregate, 
as the product of a bunch of transactions involving values that people assign to things, right? You know, almost all markets are kind of collective decision-making devices, which work by exchange usually, but not always. And it, and with land use, right, it is a product of, there, there's a whole lot of like collective action going on in the form of local government and some state government things, uh, and even some federal government regulations, uh, in addition to private swaps, that which create the patterns of land use, right? And Chris is describing in the first part of this paper, a kind of a broken political economy where some people, in order to preserve land values, are working together to defeat a kind of a global, globally, but like a a statewide or nationally like rational scheme of using land to its highest and best use, uh, you know, which is distributively just and everything else. But like, so if my goal is to have, um, to be able to sell my house for a lot, right, I'm going to behave not just in the market, like I'm not going to do things that a normal owner of property would do uh, to maximize value, like keep the house maintained and plant nice plants and all that. But I'm also going to work with my neighbors, right, to plan for the community in such a way that that I've increased the scarcity of the thing that I own, right? And, and that that's the home voter hypothesis in a nutshell, in addition to like lobbying for subsidies for for amenities nearby, which improve the value of mine. So, Chris, right. do you hate this framing or is this an okay? No, no, I think, yeah. that's, I think that's fine. And And some of the things that you do with your neighbors are great. Right. Right. From a, from a, from a global perspective, mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe you jointly maintain a park or, um, you know, maybe you and the neighbors, you know, keep the sidewalks clean or, you know, there's there can be lots of great or, you know, build a good school or, you know, contribute to the to the, you know, improvement of the neighborhood school. I mean, all of those things are are desirable. So some of the things that come with people trying to to maintain their property values are terrific. But some things that come with that are not <laughs> like trying to keep out lower income people from the neighborhood or uh, trying to reduce the aggregate supply of new housing because uh, the increase in the supply of housing is going to, to, you know, make your house less scarce and thus less valuable. And in a way, those two things might shade into each other, those two things you just mentioned as possibilities, right? Because as more and more people want to move into town A, and it starts to turn into big town A, and then, you know, small city A, um, it's going to attract people all up and down the income spectrum, because some of the people who are coming there are, are coming there to work in jobs that are providing services to other people who are working there in uh, jobs that that have a higher income potential and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, w- when you're when you're trying to resist housing becoming more available by the production of more housing, some of it is going to be for people who don't make a lot of money, and some of it's going to be for people who make quite a lot of money. Uh, all of it is more housing. <laughs> so, w- however you sort of uh, think about that, and it sounds from your paper like the Northeastern model of dealing with the problem is focused more on the low income end and the Western model is focused more on just the entire question of housing availability. However, whichever way you try to wrap, bundle it up, it does seem in the end, like you're talking about, you just need more houses. You need more residential uh, capability. Well, that's, that's the starting point in the paper, right? And right. It, that, that there's, a, there's this problem right? At least in two areas, the Northeast and, and the West, some of the most productive economic centers aren't providing enough housing. Yeah. And they're, they're basically providing opportunity for people who are high human capital people 
right? If you're if you're in finance or if you're a lawyer or a computer programmer, you know, it's and you're and you're growing up, let's say in Ohio or West Virginia or Kentucky, right? It's absolutely in your interest to to move to the locations where you, your talents can best be used. Uh, but if you're a janitor or a laborer, you know, growing up in the same place, you know, you can't, it, it used to be the case that you could still do better if you moved to the more economically productive regions of the country because you'd have higher wages. And still today you have much higher wages if you do, but those higher wages aren't going to compensate you for the higher cost of housing. So we're, we're sort of evolving due to the cost of housing into this strange stratified society. Well, there's, there's many ways in which our society is becoming stratified, but one way it's becoming stratified is, is that the most economically productive regions of the country are, are now increasingly accessible only to the highest earners. When I was in law school in, in, the, in around 2000 in the Bay Area, there were stories running in the local paper about doctors moving away because they couldn't afford to live in certain parts of the Bay Area. And so this is, you know, and doctors are typically yeah, high earners, but not high <laughs> enough, right? Right, right. And those are maybe extreme examples, but it is certainly the case that a lot of the labor force in the Bay Area now is commuting well over an hour, two hours to work from the Central Valley. And I guess that's another way people pay for things, right? So if you can't, if you can't pay for the housing, uh, you pay for, you, you can use the other thing you have, which is maybe more time. Right. But then that comes at a big environmental cost. Uh, of course, uh, uh, to, the, to, to everyone, uh, much less the sort of psychic and stress cost to the people who are engaged in the commuting. But, yes. um, you know, yeah, if you're not being paid a salary that's big enough to pay for a thing close by, uh, then you have to get a thing further away. And so you're being forced to use more of your own time to get to and fro. So, so it, from, from one end of this thing, like at a, at a state or global level, we would like for more people to be able to satisfy their preferences, just like with any other industry where people would benefit from whether, you know, it's computers or, or uh, transportation or uh, clothing or what have you. Like, you know, policies generally try to make those uh, industries work better and distribute products in ways that make people's lives richer and satisfies their preferences. So maybe the same thing with land, right? And that's kind of what we've been talking about. There seems to be a problem because I mean, you say one of the problems is you're spending time, right? But another way of looking at that, if you're commuting a long way, is that you just are not able to, you might have a preference for commuting less, but you're not able to satisfy that preference and other preferences, right? So there's right. a whole bunch of like unmet want, if not need, uh, in, in this market. But from the other perspective, from the, kind of the, uh, maybe looking a little bit backward in time, you know, people are trying to make their communities better and communities have not always been great. You know, early stories of like public health problems in New York City as it grew up and became a city. They're all, so for a long time, people have been trying to solve the problems that accompany density, right? And we talked about some of the salutary benefits of collective action rather than just individual investment in one's own property, you know, whether it's schools or parks or, or the like. But there are also like these edge cases in between the things that we've been kind of sneering at so far, you know, which is just the pure exclusion ground, but things like, you know, there is a particularly pristine and nice creek near us, and somebody wants to develop that area to become, say, a strip mall or something like that. Like, is that, is collective action to fight that, which is a kind of nimbyism, right? But like, something, which is not in my backyardism, right? Like, sometimes it's good that we collectively organize and say, not in our backyard, because, like, that's not good in anybody's backyard, right? Other times, you know, that's why the, the label, I think, nimbyism is usually referred to as things which are 
things that we need somewhere, but I don't want them where I am. Like I want all the benefits of that thing existing, but none of the costs of co-locating right. with it. But, um, but there are other circumstances in which it's like, it's harder to tell the difference. And so, so there are all kinds of salutary reasons that people have organized in these ways, but they have negative effects and it's gone. I guess the point of the paper, right, Chris, is that it's gone so far that it now becomes impossible in some of these places to build pretty much anything, um, at least in a timely way. And there's no one's quite figured out how to solve the political economy problem, except maybe California recently. And you have some additional suggestions. But how how would you frame if we haven't framed up the problem yet? Like, how would you do it? Yeah, no, I think that I think that's that's the right framing. I guess what I would add is that there have been efforts from an economic perspective to quantify what the benefits are from various land use, local land use regulations like minimum lot sizes and the like. And those do provide to the people who live in those neighborhoods, they provide some benefits, but the, but all the estimates suggest that the, the benefits are tiny compared to, uh, the social cost. Yeah. And I imagine that's somewhat hard to do as well, because, um, a lot of it is, uh, you know, there's kind of a framing bias, right? That I'm what's hard to do the estimating, the the estimating, because like, I might think that I want a big yard because maybe I grew up that way. And like, now I've got my own big yard and I'm really happy with it. And I mow the lawn all the time. But if law had somehow made that less possible and I had started living, you know, within a walkable neighborhood in a duplex or something like that. And you would ask me at that point, I probably would prefer that. And so it's really hard to know. Yeah. No, no. But even if you take preferences as given, the, the economists who've tried to quantify the benefits, given the, the existing distribution of income and the existing distribution of preferences, have concluded that that most of the more restrictive local regulations can't be justified in terms of the benefits that they provide. So what are the reasons why there's why, why there isn't a local solution for this kind of local problem? And the local problem, again, is is what that people who are in a place... Uh, that has become more attractive and therefore is attracting more people to move into it. People who are already there resist the addition of more housing stock because doing so helps maintain their value, the values of their own property. Even if they have a, a citywide preference for greater density or for greater development, like they might not prefer individual projects located near them. Mm-hmm. And so the way that many local governments are at work, as I understand from, from the paper, Chris, and you can correct me, that um, so ev- even if there is that commitment, the council may defer to like local representatives who then will oppose projects in their district. And so there's a lot of opposition going on and there's a collective action problem, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's not a great... a halt. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a description of one, one of the problems, Chris? Yeah. So, so the question basically is, is this a problem that states can solve? Why might they want to? Like what, what does the state see as the benefit that the city can't see? Right. So, so one thing is that the state encompasses people uh, from multiple cities and people from multiple suburbs, right? So it's a, it's a broader perspective. So some of the people who are voting in elections for the state may be p- prospective future residents of a city who would have no right to vote in that city or that suburbs election. Ah, yeah. And another reason you might expect to see a, a different response from the state than from uh, uh, individual local government is that there may be some interests that find it more worthwhile or happen already to be organized at the state level and not uh, at the city level and certainly not at the city level with respect to individual projects. So if you're a employer, you know, effectively 
the price of housing is determining the value of the wage that you're paying to your employees, right? So if you can, if you can bring down the price of housing within a region, you'll be able to pay your employers more without raising their wages. So that perspective might lead certain business interests to have a very strong uh, concern about regional housing supply, but to be relatively indifferent to the supply of housing in a given suburb or a given neighborhood. And so to the extent that land use decisions are made suburb by suburb or neighborhood by neighborhood, interest groups that, that care about the regional supply of housing uh, may not be involved at all, or maybe involved very little. Whereas if there are regional decisions being made about the supply of housing, uh, those, those groups might step in. But there's also just a general interest group formation story here too that happens at all scales. Like, you know, it's going to be easier for groups which, offer, uh, which operate across boundary lines to organize at the higher level, right? So the, right. the association, of, association of Home Builders would rather target officials at the state level or national level than at, you know, every city, every single city where right. they would operate. The same thing with like, this is what car manufacturers would prefer federal regulation, right? And the, the, the very thing that it's, it's interesting because the very, and of course I can only, I only think this because I've had the benefit of reading Chris's uh, excellent paper. The very thing that might cause a, a a business or similar interest to to say, "Hey, the state is the better level of government at which to pursue solutions to the concerns that we have," is the very thing that will make it hard for a solution to actually be be found and stick, because it's got to go back to the local level to get implemented. Like the problem is still things not being built in this neighborhood and that neighborhood and that neighborhood. Where they should be built, where's the best place to build it. There's all kinds of information that you would want to know in order to do a good job. Yeah, so to actually get, so you might say you're the people who are better positioned to... to The state. Uh, to realize, yeah, the state might be the people who are better positioned to realize, oh my gosh, we really do need to fix this and we need, like, there needs to be more housing built and therefore we should build it or someone should build it. Um, but when you filter that back, it's going to be like, it's going to go back to the people who are making all the objections. If you don't find some other way to get the to get this machine of development moving in the direction you want it to move because there are particular places where housing will make sense there are certain places where it's likely to be built and, and do a good job or in any right. kinds of land uses and and, but and that, that's information you would actually want to take into account to right. the degree that you could without stopping everything but the more you, but the more you take it into account the more opportunity you give to locals to right. lie to you or to distort or to give you information that causes you to uh, basically not take up the valuable land you know so it's we're just unconsciously apply things in a way that happens to be self-serving they're not they're trying to do their best but but you know we're biased creatures etc so i think this is where the voting rights analogy comes in and and then ultimately i think chris's solution right well maybe just before we go there one of the ironies maybe you could say is that as the housing crisis um started rolling slowly and then picked up steam and it's not like states completely ignored the problem <laughs> right so if you go back to the early 1970s right you see legislative activity in and judicial activity even in the in uh, the northeastern states and in California. And then Oregon and Washington start getting involved as well in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, early 90s. And and there are two models that that begin to take shape, um, which I oversimplifying a bit in the paper called the, the Northeastern model and the and the West Coast model. I thought this was very helpful. And, and the Northeastern model says we do have an affordable housing problem, but the affordable housing problem is really a problem about 
suburban barriers to the development of price-restricted housing for people of limited means. So our goal is to get exclusionary suburbs, exclusionary homogeneous suburbs to allow some poor people to move into them. How many poor people? Well, what most of the Northeastern states come up with is a 10% rule. 10% of your housing stock should consist of deed restricted housing that is only uh, made available to uh, people whose income is 80% or less of the area median income. Um, New Jersey is a little different. New Jersey says we, we actually want to estimate, or this is what the courts insist on as a matter of the state constitution. We want local governments or the state government to estimate um, what share of uh, the people within a region of a state, uh, within a region of the state of New Jersey, are uh, poor people, and then to, to provide deed-restricted housing um, in, in comparable amounts. But, the, but setting aside New Jersey, the, the basic goal is to provide a certain fraction of the housing stock uh, as deed-restricted housing while remaining indifferent to the total size of the housing stock. So, oh, so even if there were a lot less of it, you, you would say you'd want a certain percentage of it to be the... You keep using this phrase deed-restricted. What does that yes. mean? Deed-restricted meaning there's, there's a, it's privately constructed housing for the most part, but there's a restriction in the deed that says this unit can be rented or sold only to a person who uh, makes no more than this much money. It's, and it's a covenant that kind of runs with the land. And so if it's sold, that's, it's still on there, right? It's not just a matter of contract. It's a matter of contract that kind of keeps running. So it's, the, um, it's a, an income level restriction. Uh, so people might have heard, our listeners might have heard of, um, of a very uh, noxious and horrifying form of oh restriction like racial covenants. Yeah. In a way, it's, it's the same kind of instrument. It's a limitation on the way the thing can be used and sold that, that, care, that goes along with it, owner after owner, uh, but it's doing a very different thing. It's, it's targeting what a person makes instead of et cetera. Yeah. Some of that housing is actually owned and managed by nonprofits that are in the business of, of maintaining or providing affordable housing. But others, other units may simply be um, part of a market rate uh, housing development that has a certain set of, of units subject to a, a deed restriction that limits who it may be sold to or who it may be rented to. So that's the Northeastern model. Uh, what about the Western model, the West Coast model? So the West Coast model starts with, this, with a somewhat different idea, which is not that we have to simply ensure that a certain fraction of the housing stock is affordable to people of modest means. Um, instead, we need to ensure that the housing stock overall is adequate to accommodate projected population growth. So population forecasting is at the heart of the West Coast model, and local governments are expected to uh, enact land use plans and to periodically revise on a seven to 10 year cycle their land use plans so as to accommodate projected population growth. Now, the land use plan is sometimes uh, thought of as being like a constitution for local governments, or not just the, the local government generally, but the local government in its capacity as a regulator of land use. 
So uh, the plan traditionally uh, has not been uh, a document that is directly legally active, but rather it guides or shapes the adoption of zoning ordinances and other regulations, which would which are kind of the 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 rubber hits the road document and the document on which a, a developer would rely when proposing a project or a planning commission would rely in rejecting a project. It's called different things in different places. A lot of places call these comprehensive plans, and um, and and oftentimes they'll have there'll be a map and then a narrative document, right? And these go together and they can be either more specific or more general depending on state law. In California, they're called general plans, right, Chris? That's right. Um, but it's the same idea. And so there's both like what, there's there's the content of the plan, which is kind of a constitution because many states require that the the ordinances that you adopt after that comp plan be consistent with that comp plan. They differ on the degree to which that's enforceable, whether an ordinance is invalid, if it's inconsistent or not. Some states say yes, some states say no. But it very much is like, a, it, it's like a mini constitution. And there's supposed to be a different f- procedure for creating these things every, you know, X number of years, and that can vary. Um, and, and some states require communities to make these plans, and, and, and some don't, and some attach uh, funding to having a plan. So there's certain kinds of funding you can only get if you have a plan. And, um, and you cover some of this in the paper, but just about everywhere in the country, um, I, th- I think every state has communities that have these plans. Um, some require yeah. it, but um, I think about yeah. half of the states require require. Okay. But w- what goes into the plan is variable from from state to state, and the and the particular idea of of mandating the plan uh, be revised on a on a fixed schedule to accommodate projected population growth seems to be fairly fairly distinctive to the to the west coast states florida followed it as well it's so funny in a place that's housing constrained like california and and you do point out this in in the paper right where your housing plan is is going to be a factor in the population growth right i mean you can't can't understand how much the population is going to grow unless you model what the regulations will be but then you're sitting there drafting the document on which the regulations will be based yeah so so there's a there's sort of obvious problems with both the northeastern model in its traditional form and the and the west coast model in its traditional form right the obvious problem with the northeastern model is that it doesn't address the overall supply of housing right it only addresses the the supply not even the supply the percentage of units that are that are deed restricted right so i I may be wrong about this, but I believe that the that the Boston suburb of Newton, Massachusetts, is is one of the suburbs that that is in compliance with state law in Massachusetts now. Uh, Newton is one of the most expensive <laughs> places to live in the country, probably in the world, right? But um, if you're one of the very, very, very fortunate people um, who happen to win the lottery and uh, um, and get one of those ten percent of the units in Newton that are affordable. You're you're in great shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it doesn't it doesn't really make sense to address the aggregate supply of housing problem by saying that local governments are in the clear, uh, provided that they set aside ten percent of whatever they have built for for poor people. Yeah, it's it's very much like um, you know running a, a very expensive private school. And 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 accepting people to the school, but you're not need blind, but you offer a small percentage of scholarships, 
right? But you don't offer scholarships to all comers. It's just a few, right? There's a sense in which, like, that's good that you're offering those things, but it doesn't really solve the problem, right? So, so let me ask you this. So is it is it tantamount to saying that, um, or, or is it is it a, an apt observation to say, look, uh, Newton, um, you know, stop patting yourself on the back about the percentage uh, compliance uh, with the plan, it is the plan, so I suppose you're supposed to do that. But, but look, if, if you guys totally revamped the way you zone this area so that it could be twice as densely populated as it is right now, a lot more people could live here. Yeah. And a lot more people would want to live here because we already yeah. know they want to live here because of what it costs. So wh- why don't you just make it twice as dense? Uh, and of course, there's a very good answer to that, which is the people who live there now don't want it to be twice as dense. Um, but uh, for, and, 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 for, and for some very good reasons well, and, of their own. But, and it, yeah. And it's complicated because, you know, we, there's a negative image of people wanting to maintain kind of exclusive access to goodies, right? Which come from excluding people from the outside. But there's also like... There is an argument that one of the reasons everyone wants to live there has to do with the basket of goods they're able to offer because of the number of people that are already there. And you change the configuration, you have a different place. I was not trying to make it sound like there's just interest adding, on only I'm one just side. Adding, I'm saying because it's look, actually very complicated. Joe, I'm just adding fuel to your fire. That's okay, all. Good. So, so that's the that's the the obvious limitation of the of the northeastern model. The obvious limitation of the of the west coast model, Christian, you just alluded to, which is that population growth is a consequence of land use. And if you say that the amount of new housing needed in a region depends on, or in a city or in a town, depends on uh, the amount of population growth we project, and you project population growth based on past patterns of population growth, then in effect, if a local government is able to uh, prevent itself from, from granting new housing over a period of time in the past, it won't have to provide any new housing in the future. And interestingly, uh, Oregon, I think in 2014, adopted a a set of regulations that are supposed to guide the work of their demographer. And the state demographer is expressly told to survey local governments about their land use intentions when uh, the demographer is forecasting population growth. At the same time, you have another set of laws that say, uh, local governments, when you're uh, adopting your land use plans and adjusting your urban growth boundaries, uh, you must do so so as to accommodate uh, projected population growth for the next 20 years. Yeah, they should just change the state flag to a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> <laughs> well, is, well I, this is this is um, what I'm about to say is not unrelated, but I want to make sure I, I, I ask this because maybe, you know, because I, I was I was reading the paper and. I was curious about like trying to tease apart local opposition to the building of new housing based on like positive collective visions for how the community should look right and and feel taking into account the whole basket of goods that people want on the one hand and then purely exclusionary value oriented decision making on the other. It seems to me that what you could do is try to find communities where increased density would mainly redound to the benefit of people already there, you know, when there's, where there's a lot of like internal pressure to develop and communities which are subject to like a bunch of inflow, um, a bunch of people coming in from the outside and compare local opposition or the degree of uh, loosening of restrictions. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I making any sense? Yes. Uh- it's okay to say no, but you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess I, I, 
I guess I get the idea. I'm just not sure I can think of the the. Can you give an example, Christian? Yeah, like what it, what you described was was a very abstract. Like if if you had a lot of racial or religious diversity within a within a region, you might expect that within a homogeneous um, uh, subsegment of that region, there would be maybe more opposition to increased density than in a region that was uh, homogeneous in terms of religion and race. That that could be one. I'm thinking about another community where, you know, there are kind of already a lot of people living, you know, um, who, who appreciate the benefits of density and they're starting lots of businesses, you know, all the time and, and within the town, right? And so there, so the people who are already there are also in the market for creating new spaces. That seems to me a different community from one in which there are people who already have certain kinds of jobs and have lawns and have all the thing have all the amenities that they're used to who are now suddenly feeling under assault from people who want to come in and join the party. Those seem to me different kind of land use battles or situations. And it seems like in the former, there would be less opposition to... Hmm. What, what you're essentially uh, driving at, I think, is a hypothesis that that Bob Ellickson, a law professor at Yale, ventured in the 1970s, which was that local control over land use um, led to some uh, bad decisions in homogeneous suburbs that were dominated by uh, homeowners, but didn't have sort of bad regional effects because within regions you also had cities and cities are diverse with lots of different interests, unlike homogeneous suburbs. And so it's hard for any one faction to wield control of a, of a diversity government because it's hard for any one faction to wield control. Developers can play different factions off against each other. And so usually uh, in cities, housing supply will be pretty responsive to economic pressure so that you'll always see plenty of housing growth within cities, even though there may be some uh, exclusionary suburbs. That, yeah, that might be what you would expect to find. And I, I you know, um, I, I, yeah, and I'm thinking just, yeah, I was thinking just more generally of um, situations where the pressure to um, densify or um, to approve new kinds of uses is endogenous and contrasting it with where that pressure is exogenous and wondering what the political economy affects. What about uh, places that are, and I'm thinking at this moment of Detroit, uh, but there, um, surely there are others where there were uh, sort of bad economic shocks, uh, a, a real emptying of a location, and then the, uh, suddenly people are interested in returning. And I would think the first few waves of people returning would want there to be regulations and approaches that would encourage even more people to return, uh, since they're, they're trying to get enough people there to have the sort of life people want to have, which is a certain amount of people around, not no, not no one around. There's, there's no problem of, of uh, over-regulation <laughs> of housing supply in any of the Rust Belt cities, right? Right, right. <laughs> they have... There, the fact that housing is a durable good, right, has resulted in in housing being uh, far less expensive than the cost of producing housing. Yeah, and if anything, they might they might be trying to grapple with the problem. Maybe this is another project uh, trying to grapple with the problem of of sort of renewing what's there and simplifying things so that things can be pr- produced at uh, so that the cost structure is quite different. 
Yeah, I mean, they've got problems of infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. They've, yeah. they've got too much infrastructure for the population. But that's a that, that's a different that's a different problem altogether. Yeah. So so if so, let's get back to your project and the if we got some of the and your paper goes through more um, more problems and more subtle problems than the ones that we've surveyed. But if those are the obvious problems of the New England or Northeast model and then the West Coast model, you've kind of latched on to California as as recently charting a a new course which incorporates some of the yes in my backyard movement. Yeah. Um, and, and you characterize it in a particular way. And I'd like, I also want to make sure that we understand the parallel with, with voting rights, because I think that intuition, I, I imagine it's probably what drove you to see this problem in this way. And it might help our listeners also see um, how, you know, disparate areas of law um, kind of latch on to like have the same underlying abstract political economy working or similar ones. And, yeah. and, and it can mm. influence you to see solutions that you wouldn't have ototherwise seen. Yeah. Yeah. What's happening in California is, I think, interesting and and maybe maybe promising <laughs> and certainly was was interesting enough to motivate me to, to write the paper. So California is is, you know, one of these West Coast states that has for a long time required uh, local governments to plan for enough new housing through their general plan to accommodate projected population growth and to to revise those plans on a on a cycle of it's varied but now it's eight, eight years the california model has has clearly not been successful historically because california is now one of the most expensive places to live any coastal city in california is one of the most expensive places to live in in the country but the legislature has been very active over the last few years in in trying to make the the california model work better um, and to, to augment it in various ways. The piece of, of legislative activity that has gotten the most attention is actually a bill that went nowhere. Um, that bill uh, called Senate Bill 827 would have upzoned every parcel of land in the state within a quarter mile of a transit station uh, that is a bus, a ferry, a subway, a train station. In its original form, it uh, would have upzoned every every uh, such parcel of land for eight to ten story buildings. And, and as a legal matter, this is staggering because almost everywhere, almost all the time, you know, parcel level or or kind of map level regulations have been exclusively local matters of concern. Like there there are state regulations, which are general, but the idea of like what restrictions apply to particular parcels has just always been, you know, a a local concern. Yeah. And so something like 96% of San Francisco would have been covered by this bill. And most of San Francisco is now zoned for single family homes. Um, So if suddenly the whole city is zoned for eight to 10 story buildings, that would have been a dramatic, dramatic at least at the level of what's formally allowed on the map, uh, change to, to land use. Boy, that would have solved well, a lot of problems. Would it or wouldn't it? Because like, if, you, if suddenly that rule goes into effect, right, um, and the, I'm now a, a person who's thinking, gosh, uh, that set of homes over there, um, I could, if I bought them and tore them down, um, I could build a building that would cover the same sort of uh, footprint but would be this big building, which would have a lot more residences in it, which I could sell uh, as apartments. So 
you know, I could make this much money from the project. It would cost me this, you know, X less a lot to, to buy the houses right now. Right. Oh, great. I'm going to do this project. And, and part of the reason I think that's successful is people are paying a lot for the amenity of living in San Francisco. Right. Not, not living right. in a Even place, in right. an apartment. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of in a. So, so, but, so what would stop that? Ah, well, you know, there's more than one way to <laughs> prevent an eight story building than have everything be zoned single family, right? You could have, right. well, gosh, there are all these other, there's historic preservation and there's this and there's that. And there's, and one imagines that the, the people at the local level who were very opposed to this uh, might. Uh, either consciously or unconsciously, begin to think about all sorts of other issues that are suddenly arising, pass ordinances that would suddenly stop the uh, economic consequence of that state statute that the people who wrote the state statute might have imagined, right? Right, right. So so that that's a particularly extreme example, that bill, which again went nowhere, is, it a, is a particularly extreme example of the state trying to mandate upzoning. And just to be clear, it would have preempted all the things that Joe talked about, right? It just wouldn't. No, it wouldn't have. It would not have. That's, not, that's why I mentioned it. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> that's precisely the issue, <laughs> or the precisely the difficulty with that model. So in addition to sort of dramatic proposals that haven't been enacted, um, and there's similar proposals that have been introduced, not quite as extreme, but, but have been introduced in, in Oregon or about to be introduced in Washington. There have been a number of, of similar state laws that have required local governments to allow so-called accessory dwelling units on uh, lots that are zoned for single-family homes. So an accessory dwelling unit is basically a small residence that is carved out of a garage or added in the backyard. And this is seen um, by many people as a kind of minimally disruptive way to increase the number of people who can be accommodated within families that are zoned now for, for single-family homes. So California and a number of other states have passed, at the state level, laws that tell local governments to allow accessory dwelling units, uh, even if the local government doesn't want to allow accessory dwelling units on on parcels that are zoned for residential use. And the uh, California accessory dwelling unit statute was entirely ineffectual until it was uh, amended and amended and amended and amended and amended to the point that uh, California did essentially preempt uh, almost all local control over permitting of accessory dwelling units. So minimum lot sizes and setbacks and sprinkler requirements and design review. And, I mean, you name it is now, if, if what you're doing is adding an accessory dwelling unit, it's almost entirely a matter of state law. And it seems to me that the, that very uh, phenomenon, that very history kind of points in the direction of, of your proposal. Yeah. So the, so the other thing that, that has been happening in California is not an effort to direct at the state level the minimum densities that must be allowed uh, in a particular location, whether through accessory dwelling units or through upzoning of, of sites near transit, uh, but instead an effort to reform uh, the basic structure of the uh, West Coast model of planning for projected population growth. And those reforms are happening uh, in two areas. 
One is in the determination of how much new housing must be must be produced, or at least is going to be targeted for production. So California hasn't abandoned the idea of of considering population growth as a factor, and indeed projected population growth kind of remains the core factor. But in a, a bill that was enacted just this last legislative session, the state said, in addition to considering projected population growth, the state housing agency and the, the so-called councils of government, which, are, which is a regional consortiums of government that are involved in this planning process, they must consider the percentage of cost-burdened households within the region of the state that's at issue in comparison to the percentage of cost-burdened households in comparable regions of the country nationally. Cost-burdened households are defined in turn as households that are spending, I think, more than a third of their income or 30% of their income on, on housing, whether through rent or, or mortgage payments. Which is very common in California in the coast coastal cities. Yeah. And so the intuition yeah, there is so, if, if you look at that measure and you've got a lot, of, a lot more cost-burdened households in your area, that means you need more housing. Something is going wrong. You know, some, something is wrong. <laughs> now, the bill is actually silent <laughs> on what you're supposed to do when you discover, aha, the percentage of cost-burdened households in this region is vastly higher <laughs> than the percentage of cost-burdened households in comparable regions of the country. Nor does the bill define what a comparable region of the country is. So if comparable region was defined uh, on the basis of, you know, similar history <laughs> yeah. of land use oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably going to be like, oh, well, we have about the same percentage <laughs> right, of right, cost-burdened right. households or a similar history of land use regulation plus similar economic growth. But this, at the very least, is giving discretion to the state housing agency to look at the rest of the country and say, aha, something is different in California. Something is different in the Los Angeles region or the San Francisco Bay Area region. That, is, that has caused the percentage of cost-burdened households in this region to be vastly greater than the percentage of similarly burdened households in, say, the Atlanta region or the Phoenix region or the Las Vegas region. I think one of its, one of its chief merits, though, is that like, it just provides an objective target that is like neutral between income groups and other things like it just it's it's one number which is somewhat neutral which can tell you whether more supply might help right and and, and yes sometimes you know the the perfect is the enemy of the good and so you know yes there are problems with that kind of measure but like it, it to the extent that you're going to direct you're going to direct effort to increase supply in some places more than others like this is a maybe a pretty good rough and ready measure to say hey where do we need more but chris you want it to be a lever to much more than simply a precatory this would be a good place to increase supply right yeah, I mean, I, I don't in the paper say very much about, you know, how I think exactly in the best of worlds these, these regional housing targets uh, should be set. But I, but I do think they should be set in a way that is responsive to economic conditions as opposed to being uh, responsive simply to projected population growth. But what I was asking about was the, the fact that once it's set, uh, then you have an interaction between the fact that a particular locale has not yet gotten its housing supply up to the need 
and the existence of local regulations that that make it harder to build housing because you want to do an override mechanism so that if you're if a if a locale is having trouble meeting its target well we need to make it easier to build housing there somehow so two pieces of of the California reforms one piece is is changing uh, how we set regional housing targets so that they're not based purely on projected population growth but are actually uh, accounting uh, for economic conditions so that basically where people are burdened, where land is and housing is expensive, more housing will be will be built. The second piece then is a requirement that actually has some kind of consequence. Mm-hmm. right so so historically, local governments in California that planned for housing, often said, you know, we have no intention of building housing for which we have planned, right? The plan itself is a document that provides guidance, but it doesn't actually compel us to issue permits for any given project. And what California has started to do now is to make the plan into something that not simply provides guidance, but actually obligates local governments to issue building permits. But but that's better, you say, that like, so one solution to this is, you know, local governments aren't doing a good job because of broken political economies at the local level, right? For whatever reason, we talked about some of them earlier in, in the show today. So so maybe the state should just take this over and do exactly what it tried to do with the transit stops, right? And just, just do it in general. Um, and, and the answer, I think, is, of course, that boy, places are really different and they have different conditions on the ground and they can be, there can be very different harms and there's a whole different history in each. And so there's a lot of information which is important to know locally. And also it's just, there's a lot of local resource. There are a lot of local resources built up to, to, to solving these problems, even if they're misdirected right now. And it would be very expensive for the state to become a statewide um, planning commission. Right. And, right. and so can we think of another problem where there are there are there is like local intransigence and um, and maybe discrimination and just like just bad policy and, and where a, a larger unit of government might have a better kind of normative perspective, but on the other hand, doesn't want to run the thing itself. And so it, how do you how do you have is there a model for a solution to that problem? Yeah. So so that's that that was the basis for the voting rights analogy. So. I think there's some respects in which the problem of of local barriers to the supply of of new housing uh, resembles the problem that the federal government faced in the 1950s and 1960s when it tried to get jurisdictions in the South to honor the 15th Amendment, which prevents uh, denying people the right to vote on the basis of race or color. And the similarities exist whether you see the problem of, of exclusionary land use policy as being grounded in racial animus or economic self-interest or, or whatever else. The basic problem is that, is that you have a tradition of local control over the administration of elections, uh, and you have a tradition of local control over land use, and you have a set of locally powerful actors who are very threatened by what it is that the central government wants to achieve, right? So in the case of black enfranchisement, it was, it's obvious that the interests of the white power structure were opposed to, to, to black enfranchisement. Right. And in the case of, of housing, it's neighborhood people who want to keep their neighborhoods the way they are. They are. And it's also local government officials who are 
politically uh, well calibrated, shall we say, <laughs> to their constituencies. And adding new housing, especially especially new housing of a different form, uh, that is higher density housing or lower income housing than the than the existing predominant form, is also adding new voters to right. a local government, right? Who are going to have preferences again that if the housing is different in character, are going to be people with different preferences than the people who are there now and who who elected the officials who are there now. So where you have these traditions of local control and uh, uh, a conflicting objectives between the central government and the local government, you know, what, 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 what can be done? And in the voting rights context, what was done very effectively was to ban the principal instrumentalities of local discretion with respect to the franchise. And that those were tests of literacy and tests of moral character as a prerequisite to voting. And I want to say this because I, I think you, you can never say this enough. If you've never seen one of these literacy tests, listeners, like go on the internet and find these because it sounds like, you know, when I was growing up and I was taught about this, literacy testing to me, can you read, right? And it's, but it's, they're not that. They're almost impossible problems of logic and math and all kinds of things. So these literacy tests are just, were, were just out of control. So just, and they weren't, yeah. they weren't just impossible, right? But they were, they were tests that, that, that vested enormous discretion in the registrar of voters, mm-hmm. right? So the test would be something like, you know, read and interpret a section of uh, the state constitution. And then the registrar would have discretion to choose which section of the state constitution to assign to a particular applicant to read, and would also have, dis- have discretion to decide whether the interpretation was correct or not. And some sometimes the tests were like, nearly impossible problems of logic, but the entrenchment mechanism was you only had to take it if you hadn't voted in the last two elections or something like that, right? Yes. So, or if your grand great grandfather yeah, had yeah, voted that's the, prior to 1865. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but the but the key the key insight was we need to take away local discretion. And then second, once we've taken away this this element of local discretion, what we've done is to change the regulatory baseline, right, in a way that is more conducive to political participation by African Americans. But having changed local baseline, we or the regulatory baseline, we have to recognize that there are likely going to be efforts to evade that. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there is broad local control over elections, there will be other things that local governments will come up with, new tests, which are not tests of literacy or moral character, but are tests of something else. Right, that that may reintroduce discretion, location of polling places, or or having yeah. fewer of them, or having bad machines, or having right the the possibilities are endless. As we are now reliving in the, the south, of the election, <laughs> right, right, or, right, right. You know, introducing new match requirements, right, or uh, switching from uh, at large to districted elections, or districted at large elections, or reducing the number of electoral districts, or you name it, right. That there's this there's this almost unending possibility of different ways of achieving uh, the the goal of disenfranchisement, if that's the goal. And, but, you know, the, the, the basic problem, of course, is that you've got to, you have, a, you have a, a practice where local officials have better resources and some, uh, some good incentives and some good norms, but they have a few bad basic norms and incentives, right? And so right. At, the, at the national level, you want to say, you want to take those off the table, like take the worst, the things that are, that are there only to serve those bad norms, right? You take those off the table, but then you want to say, 
you know, but you still have some good local knowledge and problem solving and, and instinct about problems. Like, you know, where should this polling place be located next to this grocery store or, or over to, in this place? Right. Like a lot of times, like they know better than anybody else would. Because and the they local live knowledge there. I think is really critical. And, and, and right. in terms of yes. me and how I'm hearing all of this is, like, you know, getting rid of the local knowledge piece, that would be a huge sacrifice. Yeah. Much more so probably in the land use context. That, than in the voting context. Right. Yeah. And so the insight was, okay, we're going to take the bad stuff off the table that's obviously bad, and then we're going to let them continue to come up with plans, but you have to run it by us first. And therefore, you like get all that local information generation, but they know they're going to, they're going to basically design rules knowing that you're going to look at it and improve it. So there will still be some efforts to kind of sneak stuff by. Right, which is which looks like it's you know good stuff based on local information, but and that, that's exactly the same form as the problem here, right? I mean, it, it, right. at least in the abstract way I stated it, the problem is a pretty much exact match. There are some differences, it, there are some obvious differences, but um, you think it's a good match, Chris? And and so how how would that um, how does this translate? Yeah, so so the the way it, it translates, I I think, is that the the things that that California is now doing with this land use planning requirement are, I think, similar to the things that the uh, federal government tried to do through both the ban on literacy tests and then the way that ban was backstopped, which was requiring local governments to uh, submit proposed changes to their voting regulations to the federal government for review before those changes could go into effect. So to be clear, you know, California has not adopted a system whereby local governments have to submit every change to their land use regulations to the state for review. You know, we're, we're definitely not there. Mm-hmm. But what California has done is it said your land use plan has to establish a new regulatory baseline for housing regulation that can accommodate the projected population growth. And that land use plan has to be something that developers can actually use to get permits. Right. I mean, it, it needs to be the law, right? It, gets, it's the, it yeah. needs to be the law, right. right? You know, it's not entirely the law yet, but it is, it is now clear that a local government can't, uh, once it has adopted a housing element, point to a contrary zoning ordinance as the basis for denying a development project. And it's also clear that housing element of the general plan has to be not just sort of a general statement about what's going to be allowed where, but it has to have parcel-specific details. But also in your proposal, right, the, it's the state which sets the big normative target, how much housing, right? Yes. And at the regional yes. level, then they kind of divide it out into locals and say, well, you're, you're going to provide this much, you're going to provide that much. And then the locals, they can figure out like what makes sense in terms of where the housing should be located. But they're as you say, it has to be somewhat precise. And, and that, that's where, you know, when the local government prepares its general plan, it has to have that level of detail. And, and then there's some accountability for that plan, right? I mean, not only is it um, in, until they meet their target, they pretty much have to grant permits, which comply with what's in the general plan. And then yeah. if they don't meet their housing target under their general plan, then you, you imply, I don't think you say much about what these could be, but you imply there should be some, you, not just imply, but you say there should be some sanctions. Right. And, and the sanction that exists now is pretty minimal, um, but it's new and it's something, <laughs> right? So if a local government has failed to produce the amount of housing it was supposed to produce, it is subject going forward during the next planning cycle to a a by right development regime, 
where it loses the ability to impose discretionary conditions and to subject to uh, certain environmental reviews, projects that comply with the local government zoning, which is basically the local government's plan. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's very much like the, the Voting Rights Act and the, like the federal government, their basic norm is like, you, you got to let, you got to make sure everybody can vote. Like there can't be anything racist here. And this, and then the local government, which is the, well, here the state government, but it can be local governments under the Voting Rights Act as well. Sure. If they're subject to preclearance, it's okay, here's our plan for election. Uh, and, and the government approves it. And that's kind of the contract aspect that you um, refer to in the, in the paper, right? It's a, we offer, this as our plan, but uh, it, it's not the plan until the higher level of government accepts that, right, in a, in a contract right. type way. And then that's somehow enforceable. So that's very much the, the scheme here, right? I mean, you, you were, uh, um, I don't know if you want to say more about like bail-in and bail-out and how that could. No, I don't, I don't want to get into that <laughs> okay. level of detail. I mean, I think, the, I think the main difference is that, is that in the, the voting rights context, it was relatively easy for the federal government to establish what the new baseline was going to be. Mm-hmm. I, simply banning literacy tests and tests of moral character was enough, right? And then once that, once that baseline was established, then you could make local government show that any deviation from the baseline wasn't gonna make minority voters worse off. But there's still, yes, that's the anti, anti-retrogression, but there's still this right. difficult, like an ongoing difficulty with identifying what retrogression means given demographic changes and whether a new plan like is moving a polling place from here to there is that discriminatory there's still ongoing it seems to me maintenance and i'm not i'm not a voting rights expert by any stretch there's still like ongoing maintenance um by the higher level of government in in the hierarchical relationship here of the basic norm right yes yes but here in the housing thing it's not i mean the, the the sense in which it sounds more complicated to me is that in the context of these housing plans what you're talking about is uh, at a given point in time, what is our sense of the eight years out need for uh, the housing stock based right. on cost burden considerate, cost burden household factors and other factors? That is the thing you need to continue to estimate. And so you will continue to rely on locales to give you the information flows in part that you need to figure all that stuff yeah, out. The, the basic norm about like how much housing do we need is, you know, we need this much. And, and that's a, in a, answering that in a publicly interested way is, is difficult. But that's kind of, to me, that's kind of the beauty of just using the income burden household figure. Like it's not perfect, but like it, it, it's going to vector everything in the right direction if you use it. And it, it solves a lot of problems just right. by using that figure right and and i don't know how you feel about it chris i it's not i don't even think of it as like a second best it just seems like an easy thing to do and if we aim toward that it will solve it seems to me it solves a lot of problems it does but it doesn't tell you okay so so you set the goal that we don't want to have more income burdened households or a higher share of income burdened households in other regions um but it doesn't tell you how much more housing you need to produce to achieve that goal and it doesn't tell you how fast you need to produce that housing. So, I mean, California's housing deficit is a 50-year proposition, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to fix it in eight years. Right. So there's still a lot of discretion. Um, but it's but that's discretion vested in a state agency, and that's probably the best we can do. But but yeah, if you feel like that, if you let that rough figure just stand in for your basic norm, then you're kind of the rules that follow from that norm can be, you know, things which are hashed out. They could be things like if you are you know, between 50 and 60% income burdened, then you have to increase your housing stock by 
X percent over the last right. eight year baseline. I mean, those right. things are like debatable, but you can just do them, right? Yeah, but it would be like it would be like uh, approaching the problem of black disenfranchisement by saying, um, over the next eight years, um, we want you to enfranchise twenty yeah. percent or thirty percent or forty percent of the of the black population that's now disenfranchised. It's, it's true, but like like the the, right. the the beauty of this problem though is that there isn't the kind of um, there isn't the same moral and dignity concern. I mean, there is now the, the people not being able to afford housing and, and the ongoing housing crisis is, is a serious and real problem, but, uh, y- but you can solve it. It seems to me it, it's more justifiable to solve it using kind of rough figures and guesses and estimates than it would be, uh, you know, in a, in a racial context where there is Absolutely. a, yeah, where there's a, like a direct and serious harm for a single person who is denied a vote on the basis of race. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, all I'm, all I'm pointing out, right. Is that, is that it's, it's harder in the housing context than it was in the voting context to define what a fair baseline or a, or an appropriate baseline is. And the baseline has to be revisited, you know, every so often. Sure. But that's what we're doing, right. We're revisiting the baseline and we're telling local governments, okay, for the next eight years, we want you to produce this much housing. And we want you to come up with a plan for how you're going to do it that developers can actually rely on, right? And then that plan operates as a, as a, as a contract between, essentially, between the state and the local government that third parties, developers, can rely on to get building permits. Yeah, and all I'm saying is that, is that because the moral problem is different, like here it seems to me more justifiable if the terms of that contract are kind of like sloppier in a way, so long as they're kind of pushing in the right direction, um, right. where you wouldn't like you wouldn't accept that in the voting rights context. Yes, because there's no there's in the housing context the harms are diffuse right. and and the, there's not the, there's not the the individual level injustice that you're concerned about in the voting context. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to gainsay it because in a way there there is like there are individuals who are suffering because of broken political economies, right? It's just, like you say, it's diffuse and maybe the, maybe the moral pressure on us feels less urgent. But I mean, there are all kinds of other reasons why you might treat the two differently as well. Um, another analogy that I didn't see, I don't think I saw mentioned in the paper, but that, that I've been thinking about is the, uh, in, in a, uh, as a sort of a cap and trade solution for uh, carbon or a sort of p- a pollution control mechanism that says, X years from now, you you can't be producing more than this many units of pollutant, and how how you get there is your business, right? You figure out what you know. Uh, so a, a kind of a a technology pressure, or a um, a cap and trade with the a reduction in the number of, of right. Or you might you might look at the northeastern solution as like the old like just use if you're going to build a new place, use the best available control technology, right? That would be like the it has to be at least twenty percent affordable. Right. Whereas you're saying, like, why not use something more akin to cap and trade? Right. Yeah. And I think I think the cap and trade idea is is really interesting on a couple of levels. New Jersey actually had a version of that um, for a while that that allowed local governments that didn't want to uh, produce uh, low income housing to pay other local governments to oh produce boy. it for them. <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> no, I was, I was actually. You guys are misunderstanding. You're, you're misunderstanding. So, so I'm. What so I'm saying is, your model, you're not talking about. You're not talking about like Richville, like subsidizing Potterville. No, no, no. no. Right? I'm saying he, Chris's proposal 
is in a way saying, at least as I understood it, was saying, look, once the goal has been set, and given that it's a contract developers can rely on, in a way it's saying, developers, like you're going to figure out how to do this within the bounds of the plan. The details of that, if the town keeps saying no to you or the city keeps saying no to you, you guys are going to get to do it anyway. Because the contract's in place, they can't deny you and permit you into the inability to do it. You're going to get to do oh, it. I, and you're going to yeah. fig- get to figure out how best to do it by doing the projects you want to do. I thought the local governments were the analogs of the polluters in the example, right? Because they, they get a target and they can meet it however they want. And they have better information about how to meet the target in the same way that like big polluters might have better information about how to reduce their emissions, right? Yeah, no, I think it's the builders who were playing a role of... of they're gonna they're gonna find lots of ways to meet the goal um, if you if you set them on the plan and and don't yeah. kind of get in their way. Chris, who's right? Uh, well, I <laughs> I think I think the 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 model of the of the plan as this as this preemptive contract between the state and local government is it's pretty command and control, right? It's it's setting in place. A, a set of rules about where you can build and what you can build that then developers are supposed to be able to to rely on so, to get permits. So, so what you've just said, Chris, is that I'm right because uh, b- because like it's command and control in this in the sense that the people living under the plan, residents and builders, like they're still subject to command and control regulations. But it's but communities like local governments, they're the ones who come up with the plan. Right. But they're the ones who come up with the plan. They that have to meet the target, though. They have to meet the target, right. but they can do it in whatever way they want. Right. So it's like a. I would describe it if you're going to use the language of like environmental law. This is like a it's like a performance standard. Right. Right. We're telling you that you have to reduce your pollution by this amount this much. or We have to increase your housing supply by this much. But we're not telling you how you increase. your. But, housing but like supply. with carbon taxes or with cap and trade, like, the you know, um, your behavior has to be verifiable. And that's one right. of the issues, right? And, and the same here, right? Like what you're concerned that there may be things in the plan that the local government secretly knows that like no one's going to build there anyway because it's not buildable. And so like part of, part of the design has to be that the stuff that you say is set aside for housing is actually verifiably going to be used for that, right? Or has a good prospect of being used. So it's a right. similar set of problems, right? Yes, yes. And, and so ultimately the requirement that you plan for such and such housing has to have some consequence if you if you fail to meet your targets. So you know, right. with this, do we want to say? So I, I don't know where we are with this because um, in terms of like we we got to almost be out of time, right? I mean, we've used a lot of Chris's time. Yes, and um, and, and so usually, and I will again, Chris, as you know, since you're a listener, like I'll ask you like what we should have talked about that we that we haven't gotten <laughs> that we haven't gotten to. Um, but in addition, I just want to say that if you just read this paper kind of blind there's a lot about it that kind of looks like workmanlike and very in the weeds um and part of that is because chris is so smart and he has all these data sources and he like he's he knows how to marshal all this together but you're tackling like the big problem in land use right like how to fix how how to re-engineer what you see as a broken political economy between states and locals like that this is the basically re-engineering the foundational (laughs) precepts of land use law and um, and I don't want that to get lost here in discussions of particular implementations of general plans and other things. I think there's a really, really big idea um, 
uh, you know, and, and it's uh, Hills and Schleicher also have an idea about how, like a lot of people are thinking about this now. So I, I don't want to, anyway, I want to make sure people understand that this is a, a huge problem. They may intuit that it's a big problem because housing is out of control if you live in one of these areas. But like you're looking at this huge problem from a kind of a deep perspective within law. Yeah, and I don't know if this is a strength of the paper, a failing of the paper, but I, <laughs> I, I really want the paper to be both a paper that gives people uh, like a framework for thinking about what's happened historically here. That's the Northeastern model versus the West Coast model. And also a sense of what's so interesting and distinctive about what California is doing in, in terms of both moving beyond population growth as the basis for planning and treating the plan not as a guide to subsequent zoning or other development ordinances, but actually as a document that, that developers can rely on when they're getting yeah, permits, right. uh, even if it's contrary to some other, some other local ordinance. And then finally, to explain why that model of the plan as the, as the preemptive intergovernmental contract may be a way of dealing with the otherwise pervasive problem of local evasion of state mandates due to the great variety of forms of traditional local control over, over land use. But I, I should say, like, you know, I'm not terrifically optimistic person about, <laughs> about, about what's happening in California. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think there's some promise there. I, I don't know whether the obvious limitations or, or, or sort of lack of completeness and the realization of the vision that I lay out in the paper are just little things we'll fix along the way or reflect sort of deep political conflicts we, we simply aren't going to be able to work through. And whether like, you know, half is complete with respect to your model is half as good or if it is, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, doing something which is half as good gets you none of the way there. Right. Um, right. And so there, there's a real question. But, I, you know, part of what I was trying to say, too, is that, like, I think if you if you stripped the paper of a lot of the details about, you know, um, California and its plan, I, it would be in, in some ways more obvious that the paper is foundational with respect to. Um, local and state political economies when it comes to land use, but it would be much less obvious that this is something we could really do and it would solve real problems, right? And and so in that way, the paper it's it, the paper is kind of challenging in that way because it exercises the brain in both directions. Um, I really loved it. I thought it was great. Well, thank you. Agreed. You know, the the other thing that I'll that I'll say about this is that is that I find it exciting to be working on a problem where. Uh, there are state legislators who really want to work on it too. <laughs> yeah. And whether you look at uh, Massachusetts or California or Washington or Oregon, right, there are, there are people who recognize the problem. It's not going to be easy for them to solve it. The political economy is very difficult, but these, but these, but there are people who are smart people in state legislatures who are, who are eager to come up with new ideas, hear from people. And for me, that's, uh, energizing in contrast to working on so much uh, uh, at the national level in, in politics or uh, political reform these days, where yeah. uh, either nothing moves or to the extent that things are moving, um, they're moving along well-greased rails that are directing trains to <laughs> <laughs> preordained destinations, right? Yeah. So, 
And in general, it's always better to have 50 possible customers for ideas rather than one. Uh, I guess it depends on who your customer is. But yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. Um, Is is there anything that, that, is there any part of this paper that you think in terms of the show that we should have mentioned that we didn't? I think I think we've covered it. We didn't exactly take up your suggestion, though, Chris, that we summarize the paper briefly in five minutes or something like no, that. No, I, I managed to forestall that. I think again, so I'm glad. <laughs> I, I I think it's important that we embrace uh, Chris's critique and his suggestion, uh, but ultimately always fail to deliver on it, <laughs> especially when he's a. a a uh, co-failure in the delivery most especially I, well right. if we could take every mission one, accomplished if we could take every one of our critics of whatever it is that we do wrong and we do many things wrong and have them on the show oh that'd be great and, and then like they are a participant in failing to do the thing that they've critiqued and like i feel like somehow everybody's internalizing this is just as good as the show's going to get right? this may actually be a passage in dante's inferno the that somehow this manages to get accomplished the critic is brought into the performative failures of their own criticism. I, th- I think it could be in there. I, it's like in the eighth circle or something. Right, 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 right. Well, Chris, this is awesome. I wish you were here. Ah, I wish I was too. Instead, I'm stuck literally in the inferno, right? I mean, San Francisco is not on fire, but, but uh, you know, I feel like I am in the midst of a, you know, campground in an inversion right where there's campfires all around oh man yikes i I just saw a little bit on this uh today on 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 the twitters i saw people posting some of these things it looks really bad and some people are in danger and i hope anyway i hope everybody is well it's um, it's horrible well in my in my you know immediate network yes but um uh climate change feels feels vivid and horrifying right now so and like a metaphor for so much so much more Uh, you you know before you kick off the fifth hour of the show today um i think we should end it because what you just said i've got so many things to talk about yeah um did you know the acting attorney general is not actually the attorney general i heard that in fact i think from you (laughs) i mean no one's listening to me on this chris no, no one buys my statutory interpretation argument on this. So, uh, anyway, I'll I'll leave it at that. We'll have to have Steve Laddick on the show and argue about this. I mm. guess. But and I look forward to to listening. So, thank you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit stop.